Hello and welcome to the Life on Leverage podcast. I'm your co-host, Sam Johnson, joined as always by my other co-host, Tyler Sells. Today we are interviewing King's adjunct professor, Jim Gannon, a veteran trader who worked on Wall Street for over two decades. He began his career on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, then moved to UBS where he worked his way up to executive director covering institutional and proprietary trading, before joining the large German bank Dresdner Kleinwart as a director, where he managed hundreds of millions of dollars of the firm's trading capital before moving into education. Professor Gannon highlights many current market trends, the dislocation of economic fundamentals, and how to evaluate financial markets. We talk about the resurgence of day trading during COVID-19 and how that and much more mirrors what he saw when working during the tech bubble of the late 90s. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Life on the Rich podcast. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks for having me. We're just going to jump right into it with uh, just quick questions for you to kind of break the ice. Um, first one would be, what is your favorite neighborhood in New York City? You know, for me, I would say in Manhattan certainly would be probably Greenwich Village and the West Village. Uh, so it's an area that uh, I feel is different than any other part of the city. Uh, winding roads, name streets that don't make a whole lot of sense. Easy for people to kind of get, you know, lost in that area because if you're not familiar with it. Um, but I've always spent a lot of time there and I feel like there's a lot of things to do. There's everything from, you know, restaurants to, um, uh, kind of, uh, music venues and, and just kind of interesting people watching and kind of nice little sidewalk cafes. So it's an area that I've always felt is very, uh, kind of what you really truly believe Manhattan kind of could be and should be. What's your favorite restaurant in New York City? Yeah, you know, that I'm a huge restaurant person. All right. That's a, you know, big one. It's like asking like, what's your favorite author or song or whatever. It's like, depends on your mood. Right. Right. So I would say, um, you know, if I think of places that uh, to me signify kind of in, you know, the New York that was say 25, 30 years ago, when the areas of the city were kind of still outliers. I used to love this place that's still open. It's called Raoul's and it's Soho and it's one of the the kind of first restaurants that goes back to the 1980s that kind of helped change um, that area Soho when it was still very much uh, industrial and not many people live there or travel there so it was one of the first restaurants that kind of came in and so that's a place that um, I kind of like as a tucked away place Um, a place I love for just outdoor seating and great people watching. Um, that's again, reasonably priced is, is a very authentic Tuscan Italian place called Bar Pity, which Mm -hmm. is in Greenwich village. Um, and so, you know, those are kind of two of, uh, places that I, I like a lot. And, and then one more old kind of world place. And I like a lot of different kind of food. So, um, as you notice, I'm talking about different kinds, but, um, uh, there's an old Spanish classic Spanish restaurant called Sevilla, which also is tucked on a little street corner in Greenwich village. And, um, it feels like you're walking back into the 1920s when you go inside and still kind of the way waiters with wearing smocks come over to your table who feel like they've been working there since the 1920s, great food, you know, huge menu. Um, sangria, just, a, you know, kind of, again, feels like it's a different kind of era when you're walking in. So, you know, those are kind of three of my favorites. Of course, there's a plethora of other places. And then there's what I call the expense account restaurants that uh, <laughs> are quite expensive. And that's usually stuff we don't do with our own credit cards. <laughs> All right. Transitioning to a little bit of a finance question now. Um, can you give us one company that you're long on right now and why? And this isn't for investing advice. Just Yeah, no, understand. And, you know, I, I, 
it's hard to say one company that I, I have picked that I think is the one, but I do think this is, you know, I do, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about it more during the podcast, is I tend to look at these kind of big trends. What we've seen in the marketplace is where money's going is into growth, right? And, you know, continually, right, the same companies keep kind of uh, attracting more and more investment dollars. Um, so I think to me that the companies that are going to do the best in the next decade are going to be the companies that can make people's lives both easier and simpler. And we've seen that throughout this kind of crisis, right? The companies that have really come out of it the strongest and went in as some of them the strongest are things like Amazons and Googles that make people's lives simpler, that um, are kind of fixing problems that we have. I haven't done a whole lot of individual research, but I would say healthcare uh, is a sector that I think is going to be using more and more technology. Telemed is going to become a bigger thing. Um, I think the same thing in the world that, that I kind of know you both from is education. Um, you know, we've seen how we just very quickly transitioned to using Zoom. Probably none of us had ever used it before three months ago. Um, and now we're constantly using it. And I think even when we go back to regular classroom, um, I think the education world is always going to be utilizing more and more technology. And I think it's the way that, you know, it's the final evolution of an education that kind of was resistant to a lot of change. And we were forced to have this change. So therefore, I think it's going to just speed up. And I think that even when we're back full-time classroom, we're going to be forced to implement more and more online lectures, more kind of delivering people the information at the time that they can kind of digest it, right? So I think we're going to start to move away from defined hours and more into here's what you need to know and get this job done. Zoom and others and Google sits in a very good seat, especially in education. Um, Apple, right? Those are the companies that are going to continue right now, at least it seems to kind of do well. We've seen obviously a trend with lots of tech companies and a lot of these companies that we're talking about where it's hard to, to generate profits and generate returns, but we still have to see lots of investment going into them. What is your view on the bubble that's being created right now of companies that are launching that are truthfully just struggling to generate profit? Yeah, I, I think that's a particular concern. Now, I, I here's what I've been struggling with myself is, you know, I bring experience to the table, right? I'm in my mid fifties and I spent, you know, over 20 some odd years working in a day-to-day -day investment industry, but like everything it's changing. And what you have to be careful for in this particular world, because change now is so fast that to, to get too anchored into an old way of mm -hmm. thinking can be a disservice, but the other side can be equally dangerous, right? So what I'm spending a lot of my time on right now is to try to educate myself into where possibly my thinking is not helping the investment strategy, right? So, um, you know, I think that without a doubt, everybody's looking for growth. So therefore money is going into these areas. But with that means that people are willing to take more risk. And, you know, that's just a product of a lot of different reasons that would take too long to go into. But, but in general, investors right now, I think are assuming more and more risk than ever. Um, and, I guess what I'll just end is what really scares me is when I'm starting to see things like there's been a lot of publicity lately about the amount of new uh, Robinhood accounts that have been opened since the pandemic as people either have lost their steady income because of their jobs, their home, and they're now day trading. Mm -hmm. That brings me back to the 90s when we saw the uh, value.com uh, bust that happened in the early 2000s. 
what scares me a lot is what happened in Hertz with their particular stock in the last few weeks, but a company that is on the verge of bankruptcy. And it wasn't just Hertz. It was a number of companies where their stock price got incredibly cheap because of the fact that they were going to be going into bankruptcy. It brought in a massive amount of investment mm. because of taking a kind of what they guess was a high risk bet. And you know, we saw Hertz go up 500% of a company that's going bankrupt. And the first thing the company said was, well, we're going to issue more shares, right? Um, and we're going to issue shares that are probably going to be worthless um, until the SEC pu pushed back on them. And now yesterday they announced they're going to cancel that. So, you know, when I see those kind of trends, it somewhat scares me. And it scares me the amount of money that's been invested into companies that uh, that are not just unprofitable, but are, you know, have incredibly high cash burn. And so I, I'm leery of that. Being that you were in finance and were a trader during the, the late 90s, early 2000s yeah. bubble, how much of what's going on now is similar to that? I feel that there's even more so, um, I'm seeing more and more of it. What really defined that era was two things. It was day trading. So when people started literally leaving their normal income producing jobs and opening up trading accounts and day trading. And for the most part, what were they doing? They were trading penny stocks and those kind of other kind of get rich quick and more and more. I don't know if it's just the people I'm speaking to, but just in the, since the pandemic, I find that there's more and more people that are, um, you know, starting to trade for the first time, but also rely on trading as a source of income. And it's very different, right? When you have disposable money that you can invest and have, you know, a little bit more of a longer term kind of horizon, be willing to kind of live with the ebbs and flows. So, you know, that makes sense. But when people are starting to kind of get into penny stocks in the 90s, that literally were going from, you know, 10 cents to $2 in, in a week, and people putting in a lot of money to try to make lots of money. Uh, I'm starting to find more and more people that I, I've talked to lately that are that are kind of talking about those kind of ideas and stories. And so with some other big companies that, you know, have come through it and have become much larger um, and survived it. But you have to remember, there are like companies that lived through that era that got overvalued, but some of them were traditionally good companies. You know, we could think of Apple, you could think of, um, you know, Microsoft's and those kind of companies that, you know, were overvalued at the time because that whole rising tides and then when everything popped they all came down but when you think you know when you look back at how many of those companies never made it through that era um, i wonder if that's not going to repeat itself mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that there's not good ideas and good companies out there right now um, but when you know it's like anything i think it's the implementation of how how much cash burn you're willing to kind of go right. through and so I, I do think that it, there is a, a certain amount of, uh, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of some of what I'm seeing. Yeah, it's definitely been interesting. I mean, we're talking about this in class with you, just kind of uncertainty of what will happen. So, but could you give us, you know, maybe it's, it's hard, I guess it's hard to, sum, to give a summary of your career, but if you could give us some of, the, some of the big picture things and the moves that you've made, that'd be great. Sure, yeah. My first job was at the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, again, different era, right? So the New York Stock Exchange at that time was still a very powerful institution because it was um, the point of sale. That was a time where technology was in its infancy. So it was 100% necessary. There was no way to get business done away 
from the New York Stock Exchange, the market share was literally close to 100%. If you wanted to trade a US listed stock, you had no choice but to go to the New York Stock Exchange and you also had to do it manually. We had a lot of power and it was a great place to learn because what it taught me at least was how to kind of juggle a lot of different things at once. So um, because of the fact that everything was done over the phone, everything was done pen and paper, you know, and you had, you know, multiple, multiple kind of situations happening at the same time, um, you know, you had to learn to prioritize, you had to learn to think quick on your feet, um, you had to like understand, to have a thought of where the market was going and what you had to worry about. Uh, if the market was rising, you had to worry about this, the things you had out there for sale because you were probably being lifted. Markets going down, you had to think about the bids you had out there because you were probably being hit. And you had to prioritize things in that way. So, um, it, you know, like anything, thrown in the fire, right? Or thrown into the deep end of the pool and you have to learn to swim. And so for me, luckily, I found it in, the learning curve was so dramatically steep that it was, you know, um, such an exhilarating place and an adrenaline rush that I loved coming into work every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you found that as every week went by, you were learning so much more that it was so exciting. And so I did that for five years. And that's, to be honest, at the time, that's where I saw my career was going to be. Because as I said, it was a powerful institution. And my next step to me, you know, logical step in my career would have been to become a member of the New York Stock Exchange and have a seat on the exchange. Um, and that's what I aspired to. I, I was lucky enough where, um, you know, a person who I uh, worked next to actually um, asked me if I would come to work for their firm, right, UBS. And so the person that was running our trading desk at the time um, did a lot of proprietary trading or trading with the firm's money. Um, but I also was able to have conversations with him and kind of, um, you know, help and be a set of eyes and ears on the floor. So he kind of recognized that. So here I was thinking my career path was going to be on the floor. And then one day I get this call that says, I'd like you to come upstairs and become a, uh, a position trader and trade for the firm. And it was just completely out of the blue for me because it's not at all what I was expecting my career path to be. But I also knew he was offering me something that was, you know, an incredible opportunity that I was at the time, you know, in my mid twenties that I was incredibly fortunate for that. So um, certainly I I thought about it for, you know, a night and I, and I accepted it. And so it took me on a whole different path, which again was great because um, it now brought me to a different level. Um, I was from day one able to, you know, both interact with the firm's largest institutional clients, but also be able to trade with the firm's money. I did that for a number of, you know, years on the U.S. market. And then we got into that like kind of late 90s period, um, which was kind of right about the time when we just talked about when the dot-com era was happening. But what I looked at it as I was at a foreign firm that was one of the best equity shops in Europe and Asia, but we were never going to be Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. Right. So um, I said to myself, why am I in an area that's competing against something that were probably is unrealistic, that we're not going to ever be as good as Goldman? But if I were to move to the you know, European trading desk, 
We are the preeminent number one research firm and just was the preeminent bank for, for trading uh, European securities. So I had kind of asked if I could, if an opportunity ever kind of arose, I would be willing to kind of make that move. And luckily um, they offered me, uh, you know, that opportunity, you know, shortly after. And so I then transitioned over to trade internationally, which to me was the best move I've ever made in my career. Wow. Kind of lucky because it was also at a time where unbeknownst to me, the firm was then committed to trying to build up that business as well. Mm-hmm. But what I brought to the table was I had already now 10 years of experience of working with the institutional client base in the U.S. And I knew them and I knew how they did business. And uh, I was able to, because I was going to be servicing them, but I was going to be selling European product mm-hmm. to them. So within the first, I think, two to three years that I was on that desk, I mean, the amount of business probably grew by at least fourfold, if not fivefold. Um, And it also, what I liked about it was brought in uh, both the international side where I was dealing with all our local offices and making friendships across the globe. Mm. Uh, And then I started trading Asia as well, but also it brought in currencies, right? Which is something that I think is is a lot more important than people realize. And it's something that interests me. And so I I also now was trading in different currencies, Mm. hedging currencies, and all that kind of stuff. I left to go to a different bank where I actually, for the first time in my career, walked away from clients and I was no longer hmm. interfacing with clients and purely just running an equity portfolio with myself and a partner. Um, and I did that then for a number of years as well hmm. because yeah. things have changed so much. Right. Um, the speed of how quickly things happen today in, in every walk of life, but certainly also in financial markets, is just accelerated so greatly in the time that I, from when I came into the industry to where we are today, which maybe partly explains what's happened in the stock market over the last, you know, two months where, you know, we bottomed pretty quickly within, you know, the first few weeks and then had this massive kind of rally almost near back to the highs in just a two months. That kind of move would have taken, you know, a year or more, right, 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, I think speed and how quickly things change and the kind of dissemination of news uh, is, and, and the sources for news today, right, is so much different, right? There, it's so easy for everybody now to educate themselves. When you think about what it was like to try to do research on a company 30 years ago, right, whereas today... Right. It's right there every morning. And there's so much, there's almost more than we can digest. It's so easy now to miss kind of really significant kind of big moves, whether it be moves in society, like we're seeing with the protest and how quickly that has transformed things in the country. But also just like we just said a moment ago, where, you know, if you did not invest within the first few weeks when things were really still quite, quite uncertain, you know, there's a good chance that you missed. And, you know, I follow a lot of different industry professionals. You know, there's a lot of people who are considerably smarter than I, richer than I, and all the other things that have also kind of missed this move. So, um, and that's tough because it also then, you know, it, it, it forces sometimes that feeling of I have to do something, right? Because everybody's making money around me and all of a sudden I just missed this whole big move. And then that's, I think, where we start leading into walking away from fundamentals, right? And, you know, that somewhat is scary to me. And I feel like we just, as I'm saying, so when we ask like a finance student, 
this is something I struggle with now as a as a an instructor, a teacher, is that even the textbooks and things that we're using, as you can see, right, are not necessarily playing out in the market. And certainly the the kind of role that the federal government has played in the Federal Reserve is certainly helped with the kind of recovery in the stock market, right? There's no question that that, that hasn't, you know, really helped drive the kind of um, the rally that we've seen. Um, but at some point, right, it comes back to fundamentals. And, you know, we still have this massive unemployment situation. And, you know, I continue, I think I was saying that to my students at the end of the semester. And, you know, I still kind of think that that's an important thing to watch that the longer we stay with this persistently high uh, unemployment, to me, it just seems like it would be really difficult to have a really kind of sustained rally from here. Mm. I know some people will be brought back to work, but how many people won't be? And then yeah. does it start to spill into, okay, lower kind of sales and revenues means layoffs come at the end of the year, right? Because companies will have to start reducing their costs. Right now, the people that are work are, are unfortunately most hourly wages, um, but it might start then spilling over into mm. what we call more white collar jobs that will be harder to replace. You know, you talked earlier about how the industry is changing a lot and that it's almost like do we have to predict how much it's going to change as a whole. And I think now, especially given monetary policy that we're taking, it's almost unprecedented levels. Do you think in some ways that we're actually seeing maybe a shift in what the fundamentals are and the market may be able to, to continue to sustain itself down this path? Well, here's the deal, right? As long as we have a Fed as accommodative and that continually, right, uses the words like unlimited, and certainly it is unlimited, will take the market pretty high. I, I personally believe that where we were prior to the, the kind of uh, pandemic, you know, so much of it was being driven by the 10 years worth of monetary policy. Hmm. So much of the rally we've been in just the last eight weeks has been attributed a lot to the monetary policy. Right. I mean, Not the market moves up when the Fed says they're going to do something else. Of course. Exactly. And we just saw, what, a day or two ago where the Fed came out and said that they're going to be buying individual corporate debt now. And this is what scares me, right? So for the Fed to be so forceful, so in such a condensed period of time that they obviously see the fundamentals have to be really weak. And so they're afraid to let the fundamentals even at all play out because if we're not going to let even the market correct by, you know, we had that day a week ago about where we were down, I think 5% or something in a day, I believe. Um, and I think that really scared then obviously investors. Um, and I think it kind of also meant that the Fed felt that they have to be out there kind of putting a line in the sand saying, we're not getting back to where we were, you know, in mid-March. And one of the things that they've been able to do is kind of be able to move markets substantially by talking big games, but they doesn't mean they had to really implement or spend as much money as their largest projections are saying. I think they've expanded their balance sheet by a fair amount. I think we took it from the high fours now to uh, about $7 trillion. So we have spent a lot of money by the Federal Reserve. But the other side is when you add up all of their programs, you know, it can add up to almost, you know, $10 trillion worth of spending. They've been able to move markets even, you know, much more than it would have took if they would have actually went in and tried to spend their way to move markets. So we are shifting in how we look at deficits and debt as a country decided that we are no longer going to worry about the deficit or about the size of the debt. 
And, um, and so I'm, I'm, again, something that I'm spending a lot of time trying to educate myself on is, you know, what does that mean? What's your level of concern with the precedent that's being set by, in the last two crises in 2008, the, the Fed coming in and buying um, mortgage-backed securities, and then now they've expanded that into buying bond ETFs and individual corporate funds. How concerned are you about that even expanding even more in the next crisis? Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing that I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around because, it, look, it obviously seems like we've crossed the Rubicon in a, in a decade, two massively big events, right? But I think it's to the point of no return now where, and, and that's a little frightening because part of capitalism, right, has to be letting failure be a part of it, right? We can't just have capitalism that is going to be on the shoulders, whether it be the government or just mm. look more pointedly at the Federal Reserve. The points that you just kind of raised where we're buying things that we didn't even consider buying 10 years ago, we can no longer be surprised if in another crisis down the road warrants buying equities. Well, that's obviously the next thing that we'll probably have to do. So I'm not to try to say that capitalism is, is dead. It's just that the form of capitalism that we're practicing now is starting to kind of look more scary to me. It creates that idea of zombie companies that are existing more because the government is not letting them fail. So it scares me. How do you think large banks and institutional investors are going to have to play the market moving forward the next five years? Well, I, it's already in motion and I think it's just going to continue. If you look at banks, and I was just looking at some of some long-term charts on, on sectors, right, on industries. And if we look at the financial sector over the last 20 years, it's almost flat through all of the boom and bust. And then you can look at another industry like healthcare that has had a tremendous growth in the last 20 years, right? And, and technology and other things. So when I look at the financial industry, you know, I think they have a few things that are really going to hurt them is that one, as I said, we have underlying weak fundamentals of the kind of overall economy. So that means there's going to be more delinquent loans and larger loan provisions that losses that they have to take. Um, I also think that we're going to continue to see a trend toward more uh, adaption of technology and and specifically in the wealth management side of things, as we divorce ourselves from so-called straight fundamentals and we're kind of uh, more of these kind of just secular risk on risk off kind of trends, which is what we've seen now for a number of years. It's either all in equities or all out of equities. So we see, you know, one year the market down 20%, the next year the market up 30%. Because of that, I think that the, the value of any one individual's opinion is becoming less and less important. And it's really going to be more that, you know, we're going to have, to, you know, banks in particular, we have a, you know, very kind of flat yield curve, right? Meaning that the, the long-term uh, earning mm -hmm. for banks lending money long-term, uh, it's just not steep enough to be profitable, profitable enough for them. So they have to get better at reducing cost and being, you know, utilizing more and more technology and artificial intelligence. Um, and I think as the younger generation, right, the, those in their 20s and 30s today that have grown up with technology, younger generations are going to be more and more comfortable in not talking to individuals. So I think that what it means in the financial industry, to be honest, if we look at trading desks, and we've already seen it in say the, the, the area that I came from, the institutional trading side, 
has been downsized dramatically mm -hmm. because of technology. And one person could now do what four people used to be able to do. And the only way that the industry is going to remain as profitable as it's been is by reducing costs. They'll reduce costs by implementing more technology and less people. We've learned now that remote working can save companies right. tremendous amount on high cost commercial real estate. Continuing on the, the theme of technological advancement and innovation. Um, where do you see like large scale players like hedge funds because of the rise of the Robinhood day trader in a time like this, and they've caused some ridiculously crazy moves in stocks. Like, how do you see hedge funds being able to navigate that kind of a, an interesting environment? Uh, it's it, as you know, look at their performance, right? And we see it in the last 10 years. Uh, and as I said, before, you know, some of the smartest, you know, hedge fund investors in the world have kind of missed a lot of what happened in the last, you know, kind of two months. I think well, what's happened is, is that the biggest hedge funds have kind of drawn in assets, right? So, you know, that's been the theme of the last 10 years, right? Is that the secondary funds um, have fallen to the wayside because of either a poor performance or just high cost of doing business because of regulation and other things that bring in kind of, uh, it, it means if you're not at a critical mass in terms of assets under management, you can't survive, right? Because it's just too expensive. So therefore, um, you know, those funds fold and then those assets, they haven't left the industry. They've just been reallocated into the bigger players who have the scale to be able to, you know, uh, to function. But their performance in mass has not been right that good. And they're still holding on to a very high fee kind of model without really delivering what their investors are, are investing them for. Um, so, you know, I think it's going to be I think it's been really difficult on the hedge fund community for the last 10 years and it will be on this next 10 years because what is the game just to always play that the fed is going to be you know what we call helicopter money now has become or the fed put as they call it that as soon as the market has a kind of pullback the fed just comes in and saves the day so either you just go long and the markets do well and the economy grows and you make a lot of money or right? Your risk to the downside is limited because the Fed is always going to come in and, and never really let it really collapse. There was also these other things that had built up over the past 10 years that were also going to come into play, right? The amount of corporate debt and the amount of debt that was kind of risky corporate debt, um, I thought was going to be a bigger issue. Um, but obviously the Fed has kind of now taken that off the table. So that makes it really hard when you're trying to make decisions off of fundamentals that are available to you but then the Fed takes those fundamentals away. So I think it's going to be a really hard landscape for hedge funds. And really what it's meant is almost like hedge funds are almost becoming more now like mutual funds. You know, you almost have to be invested, have to be heavily long, and yet you're paying them a ton of fees. So why not just allocate that money into mutual funds, right? Or ETFs, you know, which has been happening, right? It's a trend, right. ETF trend's been happening. So I think it's going to be tough on hedge funds. Um, you know, moving forward. Being that you sit as a former financial professional and obviously are still very much involved in the community, but you're also a university professor. You've taught several of my classes and several yeah. of Tyler's as well. Um, could you talk to us a little bit more about the common sense program that you developed and what were some of the motivations for that? 
Yeah, I would love to. Um, so yeah, so Common Sense, or the Common Sense Program is the official name of the company, is a company that I started uh, five or six years ago. I was moving into a new phase in my career, and I wanted to kind of, you know, move out of kind of the world of finance. But at the same time, I also know that I had a you know wealth of knowledge that I've kind of accrued over the previous 25 years. So I really thought to myself, like, how can I do something to start a business? I was thinking about these things for a while. I know that uh, a tremendous amount of small, small businesses fail within the first few years. So what I didn't want to do was to go into a business that was going to be a heavily capital commitment and, you know, just find it all of a sudden two or three years later, it's just not working. And I spent, you know, I burned through a lot of my own mm. personal money. I didn't want to do that. Right. So I said, okay, what problem can I solve and how can I do it in a kind of something in a way that, you know, wouldn't take a whole lot of capital. So those were the two things that I set out for myself. And eventually just through kind of, you know, reading one day I read an article about um, the plight of financial literacy in America. And it, kind of was that light bulb moment that said, okay, that's something I can solve, right? Because I'm somewhat financially illiterate, certainly more than your average person. So um, I see how I could solve that problem. And then I just went about figuring out how do I solve it? Where's my target audience? How do I go about doing it? So what I then landed on was I said, you know, I want to work with uh, teenagers, high school age students. So that's what the Common Sense program focuses on. The reason why I chose that demographic is that I think those are really important years. And I think that uh, I look back to myself when I was in that, you know, in high school, I didn't really have a whole lot of people guiding me toward, you know, what to do with my professional life and even going into college. It was pretty much, you know, just figure it out. And so, you know, I thought if I could maybe get young kids interested in the market because once I remember I said before when I went to work at the stock exchange the learning curve was so steep and interesting to me that every day I was excited to come to work right I, I wanted to be there right and I did for years uh, I got a huge thrill out of it and so you know I felt that if I could just light that spark in whatever percentage of them maybe I can excite them so that they can then mm -hmm. kind of maybe have an idea of what they want to do when they go yeah. to college and B even if they don't they're still taking away important life skills, right? So with common sense, I focus on personal finance. The biggest thing I try to teach my students is that, you know, most people think to have a lot of money, you need to make a lot of money, but because of things, as you both know, compound interest, the earlier you start, the better it is and much more important than how much money you put away. So, you know, I try to walk them through those examples of, you know, we can look at people who made, you know, tremendous amounts of money and ended up going into personal bankruptcy because they spent it all. Or you can also look at people who, you know, made just kind of a, a you know, a, a civil servants kind of, uh, you know, um, salary, but always contributed through, you know, to their, you know, pension plans and had, you know, pension funds contributing as well. And over time, you know, have tremendous amounts of money on, you know, the back end, right? So, you know, I want people to understand that is that, you know, start early is more important than, than how much you put away. So I felt like I can teach life skills to, to kids. I can explain, take, demystify, you know, what does the stock market mean? What, is the, what does it mean when we say the market was up 200 points today? You know, what does that mean? How do we get to those numbers? You know, so, you know, I try to kind of make 
they understand those things uh, at a young age because I think once people get to a certain age, they feel almost embarrassed to ask because then they feel like they should already know. So I focused on teenagers and that's what I do now. I've aligned myself with some other kind of big institutions the biggest being Fordham University's business school. Um, and I run a big summer program there. We have, you know, this summer we're going to be doing it remotely like this, hmm. uh, but yet we still have a ton of applicants coming in. It's going to be, I think our best summer. We've been doing it there now for about three or four years. I think this is our fourth year, our fourth summer. Wow. It's getting bigger every year. Um, and so, um, you know, and I hope to continue to expand that even next summer and introduce more programs. So, and then I'm working with some other places as well. Um, the Museum of Finance and other things. So, you know, it, it's been uh, it's been really rewarding. And if I didn't do that, I never would have ended up where I am now also at King's College as a adjunct professor, right? Because that then opened up a door for me to, to move into, um, you know, teaching also a higher education. So I love it that I spend, you know, the winter teaching college students, which is really valuable at a higher kind of level. And then the summer I'm getting to, you know, work with high school kids and you know, some of them keep in contact with me throughout their college. And it's really exciting for me when a kid gets in contact with me a year later and says, hey, you know, would you write my recommendation letter for college? Or, you know, or I'm going to this school and I'm going to be studying business and it's all because I took your class. You know, those kind of things are great. And it really makes me feel good. And it makes me feel useful. Yeah, well, that's absolutely tremendous. And I know Sam and I have both appreciated your wisdom and insight in our classes. So that's awesome. Um, kind of switching gears, we've, we've built this podcast specifically for non-target students, people coming from colleges like King's or other small liberal arts colleges sure. around the country. Um, and I think, you know, you kind of get to sit at an interesting position watching King students try to launch careers. And what is it that you think King students in particular lack? And maybe the soft or hard skills that we need to be focusing on Sam and I other students like ourselves I think that what I get amazed by to me is the amount of kids that are working full-time almost and going to school full-time or if not working full-time you know they're working you know substantial hours a week at an internship some of it sometimes unpaid some of it earning wages and again it goes back to that work ethic that, you know, there's no way around that to me, right? Like I said, everybody's different. I didn't come out of a, a out of a top target school. Um, I was recognized because when I got my foot in the door, I worked hard, I cared, I took it seriously, and it was recognized. And I see a lot of that at King's as well. Mm. And I know a lot of people who will always say to me, I don't look so much at what school someone went to. And I've seen both sides of it. I've seen people from, you know, top, top, great, you know, schools that did incredibly well and were very successful and were brilliant people. But I also saw that other side of it where there's also an entitlement kind of, uh, where, um, you know, they didn't really stand out against their peers and maybe they felt like they didn't have to because they came from this big school. I, I sometimes feel that students at King's think that thinks that because it's a, um, you know, smaller, less known school that there's always kind of this, you know, challenged, but there's no substitute for in my opinion, for work and getting in there early. If you roll your sleeves up and are out there and you're working in college, it gives you a tremendous advantage. So, you know, I think that, you know, it's the, the job market is so dynamic as well. Everything is changing. Um, but I think that the, the best thing you can do is to have that can do spirit. And I see that a lot at Kings and I think people have that. 
And to me, I see, uh, you know, a, no, a pretty high amount of the students graduating with jobs in place, right? Doesn't mean the job you get is going to be your dream job either. And that's the other thing I want everybody to understand, right? Is that, you know, you can change your job. You have to be creative, right? As always. And you kind of have to assume that everybody you meet can help you and you never know who is or isn't. And I look at the projection of the common sense program. There were some people that I met that I thought were going to be these great opportunities that never really panned out to anything. And then someone else who was just a happenstance, you know, kind of meeting that all of a sudden, you know, changed the trajectory of, you know, where you, where the company went or where my path went. And so I think you have to always have that, you know, I, idea in your head that everybody you meet can help you. Mm -hmm. Right. And you want to always kind of be yourself, um, you know, and, and, you know, once you get an opportunity, that's up to you then to make the most of it. Right. And, um, you know, I think it doesn't mean to try to do things because I've seen a lot of young people, especially in the job that I had where we were committing firms money, um, try to do more than their experience probably, you know, should have allowed. And they got themselves into problems. Mm. One of the aspects of that is I think people think that if I ask too many questions, it's going to show, you know, that I, I don't know anything. Right. But the truth of the matter is, I think what's worse is when you kind of put yourself out there on a limb when you don't know anything, because mm. now you can't climb down that mm. tree. And um, sometimes that, that limb gets sawed off and all of a sudden you find yourself out of a job. So, you know, just again, anecdotally, I have a student who took my class, uh, my summer class when she was in high school um, at Fordham. She's now at NYU as a, as a finance major. She has an internship this summer and she was just, um, you know, emailing me with questions about things that, to be honest, she didn't know. And she's in an internship. And, you know, I told her, I said, look, if they're giving you work that you don't know, and especially if it's important work, don't just fudge it. We, you know, and like anything, you want work to be done right. It's not just get work done. So, you know, I told her, I said, don't be afraid to, you know, look weak if you don't know exactly what's being done, you know, ask the questions and learn from it. And I said, it's going to be a huge learning experience. She's still an underclassman at NYU. I said, by the time you get deeper into more advanced finance classes, you know, you're going to have now real world experience and it's going to make all the things that you're reading in that textbook you know, are going to be so much more easier for you to absorb, right? So again, I just think it's like that idea of, you know, go in there, do a good job, not just try to prove that like I'm the best, right? It's mm. you know, go in there and, and, and work hard. And if you don't know something, don't be afraid to admit yeah. it. Um, that's always been the way I've conducted myself. I was privileged to have the firm's capital and I treated it like it was my own. And if I got in over my head, I wanted to quickly make sure that I got someone senior involved because I didn't want to be out there on that limb, you know, yeah. and get sawed off. Well, Professor Gannon, this has been absolutely tremendous. Thank you so much for your time and for your yeah, insights and advice. It's been a great conversation. So, yeah, it's been fun. Good much. to see both of you. Um, I look forward to uh, seeing you guys soon. Hey guys, just want to say thank you again for joining us on this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, to stay up to date with new episodes, give us a follow on Instagram, Spotify, and LinkedIn at Life on Leverage Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the podcast, Sam or I 
or would like any of the links to our socials and all of our episodes, go check out our website, lifeonleveragepodcast.com. We also upload all kinds of resources on our website, like resume templates, helpful articles, and certifications that we recommend. Feel free to reach out to us with any recommendations, requests, or questions. We love to hear feedback from our listeners on how to improve and what you guys are interested in hearing more about. Thanks again. See you next time.